density. We were reminded last week at the end of chapter 2 that the heart of what Paul's on about is have faith in Jesus. That is what is the redefining reality that you should respond to all that God has done by faith. Paul has shared in chapter 1 how he's experienced this himself. When he came to faith in Jesus, he moved from someone who persecuted and mocked and tormented those who proclaimed Jesus to become one of its greatest promoters. And the Galatians whom he presented this great news of a man who was dead but is now alive, they'd received this as good. They trusted Jesus as their Lord. This was how they began the Christian life. But some other teachers have come since then and they're sort of wanting to, to modify what the appropriate response is. Trying to just sort of subtly shift the location of where their faith is going to be found. To trust in particular ways of acting, particular religious observances, in addition to trusting in what Jesus has achieved. And so Paul is approaching the Galatians and reminding them, hey, remember how you started this Christian thing? You need to finish it in the very same way. I wonder if you've ever started something and then moved on. I I love cooking and my love of cooking came in year eight when I had subjects to choose for year nine and I chose food tech. I thought, what's better than eating every second week? And uh, little did I know that there's a lot of theory involved in food tech. So eating wasn't every second week. And so my food tech teacher uh, taught us some of the basic principles of, you know, cutting things up working out what foods complement one another. The main takeaway I got from it was try and cut everything in the same size so that if you're eating a dish, it's not like you've got this massive piece of capsicum and then this tiny bit of meat. If you're going to cut meat into squares, try and cut the vegetables into squares. I'm like, okay, that sort of makes sense. But over time, I didn't sort of just come to her for all guidance and wisdom. It's not like I've got her on speed dial in my phone now. It's like, Miss Fife. Dinner tonight, this is what's in the fridge, what have we got? No, no, I moved on. I moved on from her as my sole authority onto a whole range of other things. Basically, I moved on to myself. Now it's just a free-for-all. I don't follow recipe books. I just go, let's give it a crack. What could go wrong? So I'm throwing things in here, adding that. And over time, you sort of develop skills. It's starting something and then finishing it in a different manner. For those who are at uni or have been to uni, you sort of start this new semester, it's going to be different. I'm going to take notes in every class. I'm going to be up to date with my readings. And then, you know, by week five, six, seven, you just sort of one assessment to the next. And then by the time the exams come, you're just sort of cramming. It's common in life to finish differently to the way that we start. And Paul's warning for the Galatians is don't do that with faith in Jesus. Jesus plus anything else that you've got your faith in is not trusting Jesus at all. Now, we saw last week that faith in Jesus is what defines a follower of Jesus. It should characterise a church community. And we heard that faith is ongoing because it's something that's demonstrated over time. It's not like, yep, I've got faith in Jesus. I I had it for a moment. Faith in Jesus is seen day by day, year by year. And it's distinctive. It's going to be noticed in a world where people place their faith in other things, 
place faith in themselves. But ultimately, faith in Jesus is transformative. And so we saw last week that image of faith being like braces on teeth, (laughs) that God is wanting to align and conform us into the likeness of the one that we follow. And so the, the depth and density of Paul's argument is because he thinks that what's happening to the Galatians is serious. He wants them to be recommitted about trusting in Jesus alone. The work that God has begun in them, he wants to complete. And it's activated by faith alone. And the object of that faith, Paul is going to encourage, needs to continually be Faith in God rather than faith in self. And what we see in our passage today is that faith in Jesus is actually a realisation of a very key promise in God's plan. You see, the beginning of God's plan was a promise. As God sees... Humanity in in a broken relationship with himself in in this world in Genesis that is busted up in a whole range of ways, promise becomes God's primary action. And the key to God's plan being realised is the promise realised. And so God continuing to live, God's people continuing to live by faith is faith in the one who promised and their ability to deliver. And now the current issue that seemed to be happening to the Galatians is that there was some dispute about whether those who were non-Jewish in the church community could eat with those who were Jewish followers of Jesus. And rather than sort of unpacking that specifically, Paul here places it in the larger plan of God. That's why we had our second reading here from Genesis 12. It's this time when God promised how he was going to bring a kingdom that was restored. You see, the pattern of the kingdom was established in creation, that it perished due to sin and the lure of evil in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Genesis chapter 12, this is uh, the poster that's in the kids' church. The guys looked at it last year. We're going to keep realising that God's purposes are realised in a plan. And so in Genesis 12, the third column there, there was a promised kingdom. A promise was made to an old barren couple Abram and Sarai, that they would have descendants who would be as many as the stars in the sky, that they would be a family who has a land that they can call their own and that they would be blessed and, in fact, through their family, the whole world would be blessed. And so Paul's main point in the passage, that dense passage that we just heard read, is that God's people are freed by a promise. Now, if we just sort of think about promise for a moment, we we know that promises make a difference. Many of you know that we've sort of been, you know, in the grip of this uh, housing thing the last 18 months. And so this last particular week, the big thing was, is the bank going to make a firm promise (laughs) that they're going to loan us the money? Now, before they signed that off, they needed information to validate that decision. They needed the details of the property that we would be borrowing against. They needed the price that was going to be purchased for. They needed information about our recent income. 
They needed to know who we were, identification documents. They wanted to see all of our assets and liabilities. They needed proof of employment. They wanted to see our spending habits. They wanted a record of every bank statement known to man. Because making a a big promise and loaning us money, that was a big deal. They had to do the due diligence to justify that making a promise to give us this money was valid. It was a large amount of money. They weren't going to make this promise lightly. It's in their business to make good promises. The global financial crisis back in 2008 was because banks gave money to people who couldn't pay it back. They gave money for properties that weren't worth what they were claimed to be worth. Banks need to be careful about the promises they make because their, their, their business is built on it. Now, I'm not uh, encouraging modern banking or encouraging you to take out a debt. It's just an example of, of how promises matter. I remember back at uni quitting one part-time job because my boss at the other part-time job said, hey, we've got some more hours for you. And it was a, a better job. And so I quit this job and I turn up at the new one to find out that boss has been fired. And the people there are like, what are you doing here? <laughs> His promise to me was empty. Actually, keeping your promise matters, doesn't it? Promises change our lives. Think about the the marriage promise. In sickness and in health, till death do us part. It's a promise that changes everything. Now, how we've experienced the bank's promise to loan us money has actually changed everything about our housing situation. It was so key for us to know how much will they lend us. It opened up new possibilities that weren't previously available to us. It freed us from being limited purely to our own assets. And so the bank making a promise and then guaranteeing that they would deliver it, it changed our reality. But it comes at great cost. You know, I was chatting to some other parent this week at school and I'm like, oh yeah, I think we've just signed a mortgage. And they're like, get the chains on. You know, that's it, isn't it? When you've got a mortgage, you're indebted. The repayments, they're scheduled, they're unrelenting, they're unfavourable. The banks can always record these profits because all the terms are in their favour. And so to take on a loan, to accept a promise that someone's going to give you something, it requires a cost-benefit analysis. The cost for us was the massive financial equipment uh, commitment. The benefit is being freed. Freed in some ways from housing instability. And so the bank's promise to free us from instability, our promise to the bank that we would repay this loan, it enslaves us. There's sort of this movement of being freed and being slaved. Promises matter. And so Paul who's previously established all these little churches through the Galatian region by proclaiming that the promise of forgiveness and life in Jesus is a message that is to be received by faith, is now concerned that despite initially having placed their faith in Jesus alone, they're starting to continue to live by faith in themselves, by faith in particular religious practices. And so we see in the first six verses of chapter 3, have a look there, that that Paul is just astonished. He's like, 
How foolish you are. You see, despite their own personal experience of the Spirit, he just sort of rattles off all these questions. Who's bewitched you? How did you receive the Spirit? Was it law or belief? After beginning in the the Spirit, are you going to continue in the flesh? Was everything that you'd experienced in vain? These first six verses, Paul is referring to the personal experience of faith in Jesus that the Galatians had had. They'd experienced the power and work of God's Spirit, the same power that was at work long ago in the main character of Paul's argument in chapter 3, Abraham. And so in chapter 3, verse 6, so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Paul's saying that faith in Jesus binds you into the promise that was made to Abraham. God promised Abraham that he'd bless him and that through Abraham he'd bless the whole world. God promised to give him lots and lots of family, offspring who then inherit the land God was giving. And faith is the family resemblance that binds God's people together. The faith of Abraham in a promise that he couldn't really see happening, that seemed impossible for God to deliver, that he would have one child or many descendants. This faith in God's promises is what is to characterise all of Abraham's descendants. You see, the people of God don't have physical resemblance. It's an attitudinal resemblance. God's people should be characterised and identified as people who have faith in God. Faith in his promises made and promises kept. Have a look down at chapter 3, verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to you and your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Now, seed in this context means offspring. The thing about the word seed or offspring, for that matter, is it's the same word whether you're talking about one or many. If you're talking about the single or the plural. So you can have one seed or you can have lots of seed. You can have one offspring or lots of offspring. It's similar with fish. You can have one fish or a school of fish, one sheep or a flock of sheep. Paul's point is that back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, God makes the promise to Abraham and his seed. Not seeds, offspring. Not the plural offsprings. It's about the one, not the many. God could have easily said family. He could have said children. But the promise to Abraham and his family, or his children, or the promise to Abraham and his family, would have been perfectly good words to use. But instead, God uses the word seed. It could mean one or it could mean many. Paul's point in chapter 3, verse 16, is that God said seed because he has one in mind. And that particular seed, that particular offspring that we're going to realise all that was promised to Abraham was, in fact, Jesus. Jesus was the offspring promised to Abraham who would be a blessing to the nations. He'd be the one who'd be under the curse of sin 
and then bring blessing by becoming a curse for us, as he says in verse 13. You see, the one God promised to give the inheritance of the Spirit to was Jesus, so that he could then pass it on to the rest of the family. And significantly for the issue that's at hand for the Galatians, this promise to Abraham was made before God gave the law to Moses. Paul's point is that God's plan has always been eternal. God isn't sort of having to chop and change and sort of work out the next solution because the last plan failed. It always has and always will be about Jesus and by faith in him. And so the coming of the law couldn't change that. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Paul's talking about when the law came. When it came along with Moses, it couldn't change the promise that had been made to Abraham. It wasn't introducing a new way to be blessed by God. Which leads to the obvious question, well, what's the point of the law anyway? It fills so much of the Old Testament, describing what the laws are, what should be done if the laws are breached. Well, Paul asked that very question himself. Verse 19, why then was the law given at all? And he says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Now, transgressions means breaking the law. And so before the law, before Moses, people still sinned. They didn't trust God. They rejected God overtly. But once the law came, it became obvious how sin was manifesting. And sinners became lawbreakers. But Paul seems to be saying that the law had this sort of temporary role, a bit like a relieving teacher. Yeah, aligned with the values and ethos, here to enforce the standard, but just for a limited time. And verse 19 says, The law's time was until the seed... Jesus, the promised one, arrived. Now, the law had a key part in showing that God's people are to be different, set apart by God for God. They are to be brought as unholy people who can be and relate to a holy God at some level. The law wasn't bad. It doesn't contradict God's will. It's just limited. It's not that now Jesus has come, anything that was in the law we just sort of dismiss. But Paul is adamant that the role of the law is to highlight the problem with humans and this world. And the solution is not found in obedience to the law. And so then Paul uses a couple of analogies to sort of emphasise that the law had a limited time role. Uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 23, he uses the image of a prison guard. He says, uh, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. It's this idea that the law teaches God's demands and it sets out the punishments for breaching God's will. And it basically says it condemns God's people. They were locked up, waiting for release, waiting to be freed by the constraints of a standard that they couldn't meet. 
The second analogy that Paul uses from verse 24 is about sort of a household supervision of kids. Verse 24, so the law was our guardian, babysitter maybe, until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer art under a guardian or a babysitter. You see, this word of guardian, babysitter, it sort of alludes to the household where the father of the house would entrust to one of the elder slaves the discipline, the care of the children in the household. God's saying that's what the law does until Jesus comes. It sets the boundaries, it disciplines behaviour, it keeps God's people in line with God's will. But now... All people, including the Jews, are put right with God by trusting Jesus rather than trusting in their compliance with the law. Paul continues with these analogies in chapter 4 where he talks about heirs. And he talks about how whilst children who might be heirs to a family estate are entitled, they don't actually inherit anything until they come of age. And Paul is saying that's the same for the Jews. Before Jesus... They're being looked after by their governess, the law. As infants, they have no more status than slaves. Chapter 4, verse 2, the date set by the father that when they grew up and the governess wasn't needed anymore, then the transformation. They become heirs. And this happens when Jesus comes. Chapter 4, verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. The promise made to Abraham well before the law was given is secured by the seed, Jesus, for all who have faith in him. And this promise made is now realised by the Spirit. The Spirit which Paul had reminded the Galatians earlier in chapter 3 that they had received. The Spirit whose role is vital for the, in the, the growth of those who keep living by faith in Jesus. The Spirit who binds all who are descendants of the promise as the people of God. The reception of the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit, the power and work of the Spirit is what unites God's people, not observance of the law. The the current issue was as there was increasing division between those of Jewish and Gentile background within the church, Paul says, no, what unites you is your identity in Christ. The object of your faith is not self, but God. And you are caught up in a promise that is so amazing. Chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptised into Christ, have closed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for all you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed 
and heirs according to the promise. God's promise to Abraham is realised through faith in Jesus. There shouldn't be any division about who can eat or not eat with one another. For us, it doesn't matter what school you go to, whether you go to a public school or a private school, the music that you like, the clothes that you wear. It doesn't matter how many degrees you have or the type of work that you do. It doesn't matter your tax bracket, your cultural background or the state of your residence. If you belong to Christ, you are an heir of the promise who all cry out with the same spirit to the one Father. Heirs who are no longer bound in slavery but have been freed through Jesus. Living not as people who have freed themselves but people who have been freed by another. I began sharing about that sort of promise that the bank was making to loan us money and how it changed everything. I want to finish with another story of another promise that actually changed our reality too. It's a promise that my grandfather made. My grandfather, who I only, I've only got one picture of him, him holding me as a one-year-old, who made a promise in his estate that his grandchildren would inherit all of his money. Yep, his estate buy-skipped his own children. That's an interesting story that I haven't heard about yet. He'd sold his farm on the outskirts of a regional city in uh, Victoria, and those funds he'd invested and held in trust. And upon entrusting them to his eldest son, the clause was that when his eldest son, my uncle, died, those funds were to be released to his grandchildren. This was a promise that my grandfather made to four grandkids who at the time were babies or small children. A promise made not because we'd earned the right to receive such blessing. A promise that wasn't made because we were really reliable and trustworthy. But a promise made by him that meant that we would be blessed and that we could then be a blessing. You see, it's my grandfather's promise that actually has changed our reality and our possibilities for our housing situation in the last six months. Because in fact, the amount of money that the bank was willing to loan us, that's actually got less than what it was 12 months ago. With all the economic thing, the bank, as they sort of run the metrics, they're like, well, actually, if I'm going to promise to loan you this money, I'm going to need more information and I'm going to increase the standard and so I'm going to reduce the amount that I'm going to lend to you. But this money that we received because we were heirs has opened up the possibility of home ownership in Sydney that up until this point was impossible. Now I'm not saying this is ultimate, this isn't the sort of thing about you've got to own in Sydney. But it's just an illustration that my grandfather's promise from way ago that I had no idea about is actually making a new reality. It's made the impossible possible. And so when you've been freed by a promise that someone else has made that you contribute nothing to, then what's the posture? Well, for me, there's no arrogance that, oh, you know, I deserve this. I've just got this um, smart saving strategy and if you want to own a place in Sydney, just follow this strategy. No, there's none of that. 
There's no smugness that I sort of outthought the market. Oh, you know, I'm buying low and selling high. Uh, just humbled that this promise bestowed to me as an heir has changed my reality. And so too, isn't that the great promise that was made to Abraham that is access to anyone who has faith in Jesus? And it's not just that God's inheritance sort of covers half, like we still had to take out the mortgage. We're still living this moment of uh, this money that we've inherited that we have no obligation to, as well as the equal sum of money that, more than equal, um, a massive amount of money that we are indebted to. God's promise covers the whole thing. You see, what Jesus has established, this perfected kingdom, this new creation, it's, it's better than owning a little piece of real estate in Sydney. It, it won't continually need repair. It won't become outdated. It's not vulnerable to the weather or invasion of thieves. No, no, no. The kingdom that Jesus establishes lasts forever. And so those who live as heirs... Those who have been freed from the bondage of trying to earn God's approval surely should live differently. We should be people who live with security, that our future has been secured through the promise. And so as we grapple with insecurity, maybe it's about our housing situation, maybe it's about our financial situation, maybe it's about our work situation or our relationship set up, as we battle with insecurities and that option is, are we going to place our faith in self to rectify this situation or are we going faith, to have faith in the one who's promised that we who trust in Jesus are heirs to an eternal kingdom? That's when the difference in posture will be noticed. Rather than an arrogance that we've been able to get ourselves out of the hole, there's just a humility And a thankfulness that the promise made to Abraham is the promise that actually secures life eternally. And so not only freeing us from our insecurity, it frees us from our despair of unrealised dreams, knowing that the kingdom is eternal. It frees us from our disappointment as we become overwhelmed by our mistakes to know that this kingdom is, is restorative. And... This promise is available for all people. Any background, any situation, any set of decisions that an individual has made does not exclude them from the offer of being heirs, of being moved from a slave to a son to an heir. And so what a joy we have to seek to embody that as a people united, as those with faith in Jesus. And so let's thank God and let's ask him to fill us with a right view of where we are in his plan. Let's pray.